About a week or so ago, there was um, a rally in Longsight for the Pakistani community uh, to commemorate um, the tragic killing of many, many school children in the, the city of Peshawar. And Beth and I thought it might be a good idea just to go along and show some solidarity with our Muslim neighbours who were grieving. And it was good to see other Christians there and other community groups. Um, <clears throat> and there was one moment in which I thought, I really do need to say something through the megaphone, and then somebody stepped up and said it much better than I could. So I was just about to slope off home um, <clears throat> when I saw a TV camera there and, and a light and someone with a microphone. I've always fancied my five minutes of glory. <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> Guy standing there turned to me and said, do you want to say something? I said, oh, yes, please. Um, and uh, I thought, this is good. The young lady standing there is going to put the microphone here and she's going to ask me some questions and I shall dazzle the audience in Pakistan. It's Pakistani TV. Well, he walked up and then I suddenly realised as she had the mic to me that it wasn't an interview, it was impromptu. And what really threw me was the man said, you've got 30 seconds, Go. How do you find something meaningful to say in 30 seconds? Well, if you happened at any time in the near future to tune into Pakistani TV, and you've seen this rather elderly, confused-looking gentleman blinking owl-like into a TV camera and muttering incoherently, oh, I am that man. I failed the test. Unlike the Apostle John, whose words we've just read, who had the rare gift of saying a great deal in a very short space. A gift, I may add, I don't share. <laughs> Let alone 30 seconds. I think it takes about 20 seconds to read the first few verses of John chapter 1. And the words he uses are words that could be understood by an eight-year-old child. Light. Life. Witness. Glory. And one verse which I think demonstrates more than anything this man's amazing gift to pack so much rich truth into such a short space, I would say, was the beginning. What? Verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. I defy anyone to describe the entire work of the, and ministry of Jesus Christ from one end of eternity to the other in one sentence. I can tell you this, that all the libraries in the world couldn't contain the books that scholars could write on even those few words. So I'm going to try and be short this morning and I will do my best to be simple. Who wrote this? His name is John, and he's an old man. He's writing about events that happened some 50 years ago. It's at least 50 years since he saw Jesus in the flesh. Since, since he'd seen the crucifixion and witnessed his resurrection. More than 50 years since he'd heard those wonderful world-changing words come from his lips. And now he has lived long in that faith, and he suffered for it. 
He's had time to reflect upon the meaning of Jesus Christ, and in particular, the meaning of his coming. And in these opening verses, you have, in effect, a glimpse at the menu of the meal that's going to follow in the whole gospel. Those words I mentioned to you, light, life, witness, glory, they're going to crop up again and again in this letter. So what you have here in what's called the prologue is a taster of what John has to say about Jesus Christ. And he also tells us later on why he wrote this. He tells us in no uncertain terms that he wrote about Jesus Christ in order to persuade the hearers, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And with that grand task in mind, John uses the simplest and yet the most majestic language perhaps ever recorded to describe that unique event when the word of God became flesh. All I want to say to you this morning about this part of John's gospel is this. It's the tale of two relationships. It's the tale of two relationships. If you understand these two relationships, how they operate and how they connect, you will understand everything you need to know about the life about life, the universe, and everything. You will be able to read your own life and understand it. You will be able to understand the way the world should work and where the world is going. Understand these two relationships and so many things that puzzle wiser men than you and me will fall into place. In just a few words... John directs us to the two key relationships which hold reality together, which make sense of everything that there is in this world and in the world to come. The tale of two relationships. The first relationship is the relationship between God and the Word. There it is, chapter, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. <clears throat> the relationship between God and the word was from all time and before all time serene and harmonious. It is clear from what we read here <clears throat> that before there was anything at all, there was not nothing. Let me say that again in case you thought um, I'd lost my way. Before there was anything at all, there was not nothing. In other words, before the universe existed, there wasn't a vast, nameless emptiness. Oh no, quite the opposite. What do we see? We see in that world before time began, there is God, ever-living, all-powerful, eternally self-existing. He doesn't come into existence. He isn't brought into existence. He just is. And this great God is not lonesome. No, 
he has the word with him. And this word is with him. Now, I want you to look at that word, with. It's a very simple word, but it really needs unpacking. You are, shall we say, queuing in the pub for a drink. And you're standing next to a guy. You don't particularly like the look of him, but, you know, guys, you're standing in the queue, you nod to each other, and you just start a slightly awkward, blokey sort of conversation. Right? Next minute, out of nowhere, two policemen come into the pub and grab this guy and start to take his details down and begin the process of arresting him. And they then turn to you and they say, Sir, are you with this man? Well, of course you'd say, well, I am because I'm standing next to him. But I'm not with him. See, when John says the word was with God, he doesn't mean there were two people in heaven standing next to each other. No, the word was God. And that phrase there, the word translated with means, and he was face to face with God. There was intimacy there. This was a relationship that gave birth to community. So as I said, before there was anything at all, there was not nothing. There was life and there was community. But let's not stop there. Further down in verse 14, it says the word became flesh made his dwelling among us, we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Let's change that word from and put in the word alongside, because that's what it means. This word who was face to face with God the Father, who was alongside him, who was one with him, who looked at him as two lovers exchanged glances, tied together in eternal love and rapture, he came down. He came here. And then thirdly, in verse 18, and this is even more astonishing, (laughs) the language that John uses to describe the relationship between God and the word. He says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only son, or as some prefer to translate it, the one of a kind son, the unique son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father. That phrase literally means is in the Father's lap. And how interesting that John should use that phrase. Because there's an incident later in the Gospel when almost the exact same words are used of John at the Last Supper, sitting next to Jesus, listening to his words, and leaning against him. Literally in his lap. Now, in our highly sexualized society we'd assume there's something homoerotic going on there but it's a perfectly acceptable and legitimate cultural way of expressing closeness and intimacy and love when people ate their meals they reclined on their left hand side their feet away from the table and it was natural if you had a close friend next to you to lean against them particularly if you wanted to talk quietly with them and that is the picture of the relationship of God and the word. They are alongside one another. They are face to face with one another. And the son lies in the father's lap. The relationship that is eternal, untroubled, serene and harmonious. Now, if that wasn't enough, we can't spend long on this, but I just want to 
whet your appetite. This wasn't enough. He goes on in verse 2 to emphasize this. He says he was with God in the beginning. And then he goes on to say, through him, that is the word, everything was made. And as if we might miss the point, there wasn't anything that was made that wasn't made by him. Everything was made by him. So let me go back to my first point and reiterate it. Before there was anything, there was not nothing. There was life, there was community, and there was love. I'm prepared to be blown away by this. The result of that love gave birth to the universe. Reality as we know it was birthed in love. If you go, if you could go to the deepest depths of the deepest ocean and into the darkest and most inaccessible subterranean cave and find some tiny marine creature, or if you were to go to the vastest of mountain ranges on the surface of the earth, you will find the same fingerprint. Look closely and read these words. Jesus Christ made me, and I belong to him. And then turn to the subject most dear to our own hearts, ourselves, homo sapiens, and look deep down inside, deeper than the tissues, deeper than the proteins and amino acids, deeper than the, the fundamental structures of DNA, and what will you find? The same signature. Jesus Christ made me, and I belong to him. So all things, everywhere, in all three or four dimensions, all bear the mark of the personal signature of Jesus Christ. And get this, not only did he make everything, the New Testament tells us it was made for him. It was made for his pleasure. It was as if the Father and the Son so loved each other, they said, let's make something else. You know, like men or women get together and make babies because they love each other. So the father and the son gazing at each other in rapt adoration from all eternity say, let's make a universe. And let that universe know how much we love each other. And let that universe share in the love we have for each other. Let that universe see the light in which we live. And bathe in the love in which we're bathed. Let that universe know the light and the life that will sustain us and will sustain them. And so the great eternal God, who existed timelessly and effortlessly, not needing anyone or anything, pours out of himself in sheer gratuitous generosity. What you and I call the real world. You and me. And everything else. So much for the relationship between God and the world. And isn't it a strange thing? <clears throat> to think that means that this world is real. But it's only real because the God is real. He is the great reality from which all other realities come. 
Well, we tend to reverse the order, don't we? We think everything around us is so real. Whether it's the feel of a lover's hand, the patter of children's feet, the pain when you stub your toe on the, the end of the bed, or the wind driving in your face as you cycle to a morning lecture in Manchester. Oh, it's all so real, isn't it? We can feel it, we can handle it, we can smell it, we can taste it. Oh, but then God? It's really hard to believe he's that real, isn't it? It's like looking at God as the child taking the telescope and reversing it and looking down the wrong end and everything looks so small and unreal. Isn't that right? You show me a Christian who has never knelt to pray and asked themselves the question, is there anyone there? And yet John says, oh, it's the other way round. Better to question your own existence and your own reality than to question the existence of God and the word. Better to look in the mirror and say, am I looking at a, a dream, a figment of somebody's imagination, than to say, is God not real? God is the ultimate reality on which all other realities depend. And he is a joyful reality because being all-powerful and untroubled by anything that could disturb the calm of his eternal goodness and his eternal power, he is gloriously happy. And when he shares the relationship that the Father and the Son have with each other, with other creatures, they enter into that happiness. And so there's a very good test as to whether you know God at all. As to whether you have experienced the joy of Jesus Christ. The joy of knowing God. Whether your religion is a sort of religion that really gives you maybe a sense of uh, a quiet conscience. A sense of having done the right thing well. But it doesn't give you any joy. Then you don't know the living God. That's the test. So much for God and the word. Let's just look briefly at the second relationship. The word and the world. That's the other relationship here. Now, unlike the relationship between God and the word, the relationship between the word and the world is not serene and harmonious, but troubled and dysfunctional. John simply refers to it as being a world of darkness. Verse 5. The light, we know where that's coming from, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Then a little later in verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, I said that every living thing has a stamp of Jesus Christ on it. It belongs to him. It's his property. And yet, so often, the world he made doesn't recognize him. There's no time for him. So often, people's reaction to Jesus Christ is to turn away with a shrug of indifference. And yet they bear his mark, his signature. And you know, sometimes we have tried so hard to scratch that signature out so that we could sleep at night. So we could get rid of God forever and bury any thought of having to face our maker. But the signature cannot be erased. The light shines in the darkness. This relationship between the word and the world is troubled and dysfunctional. You know, this darkness has many, many names. 
cruelty, pride, greed, fear, anxiety, selfishness, gluttony, sexual immorality, violence, abuse, unbelief. This darkness has many, many names. And it isn't a darkness that settles over us like the Manchester sky. This darkness sinks into our very bones. In fact, at one point, one of the writers of the New Testament says of people who were formerly unbelievers, he said, you were once darkness. He didn't say you were in the darkness. He said, you were darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. What a terrible verdict on the world that God made. Not only does it not recognize him, but it's darkness. And John understands what this darkness is like, because a little later on in the third chapter, he says this. He says, light. Oh, he says, this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but humanity prefers darkness to light, or people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So now we see what the darkness really consists of. Yes, it has all those names, the names of various kinds of wrongdoing, but essentially the darkness is a cover. It is a deliberate attempt to blot out the light and love of Almighty God. As if we were meant to live like moles underground in perpetual darkness, <laughs> instead of living in the light of the sunshine of God's love. There is this troubled and dysfunctional relationship, and that's what <laughs> Christmas is really about. How does that serene and harmonious relationship between God and his son, which has existed untroubled from all eternity, how does it deal with this second relationship, which is so troubled and dysfunctional? And that really is my sort of concluding point. How does the first relationship affect the second one? The answer, of course, is found throughout this reading, but especially in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why does John call the Son of God, whom we know as Jesus Christ, the Word? No one else does it. It's unique to John in the New Testament. Why does he do it? There are probably several reasons. I can think of at least a few. Here are they. Here they are. One, he calls him the Word because the Son is the perfect expression of who God is as John puts it back it down in verse 18 he says uh, no one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God is in the closest relationship with the father he has and I'm paraphrasing he has given a full account of him so you see Jesus is the word because Jesus, the Son, the one and only Son of God, is the only one who can give a complete account of the Father. Why? Because he's one with him. Because he is God. And remember who's saying this, John the Apostle. John the Apostle knows about intimate relationships because he had an intimate relationship with Jesus on earth. Jesus, uh, sorry, John refers to himself rather coyly throughout his gospel as the disciple that Jesus loved. 
John, who wrote these words, was one of a group of three, James, John, and Peter, whom Jesus often separated off for special tasks. As we already mentioned, at the Last Supper, John was sitting at his right hand, the place of the favoured guest, leaning against Jesus. And then finally at the cross, Jesus bequeaths his mother to the care of John, and John to the responsibility for his mother. So John knew what it meant to enjoy an intimate relationship with the word of God on earth. And he's uniquely qualified, therefore, to give us this amazing insight into the relationships that exist between the father and the son. But how does this relationship of the father and the, of God and the word actually affect the dysfunctional, troubled relationship between the word and the world, which is characterised by darkness. Verse 14 says, He came and embraced the darkness. Notice John didn't say, He came into the world, guns are blazing, ready to do battle with the forces of darkness and to triumph over his enemies in one day. Oh no. He doesn't say he came into the world as a mighty, strong, admirable leader that would naturally command the attention of everybody else. Two feet above all his, 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 uh, his opponents, someone to whom people would naturally look. He doesn't say he came into the world with a rare gift of eloquence that he could move thousands of people in the crowds. Or that sort of charisma that would make him stomp through the X Factor. Oh, it says he was born flesh. And that word there means that he was born of the same broken, weary stuff that we're made of. The kind of flesh that gets tired. The kind of flesh that doesn't have endless resources of energy. The kind of flesh that knows when it's coffee time and lunch time and bedtime. The kind of flesh that knows how to cry when it's heartaches. The kind of flesh that ultimately is able to suffer die and be humiliated. That's how he came into the world. He went out of the world like a lion, <laughs> triumphant over death in the grave, but he came in like a lamb, quietly and meekly, clothed in our broken humanity. That was how the glorious relationship of love was channeled down into this dark world. God chose to come, not in a blaze of light, but in a human life. Clothed with the weaknesses that we know. So that he could walk our steps, feel our pain, and ultimately bear the weight of that terrible darkness until it sunk him into the grave. And then by the power of his indestructible life, destroyed it and rose triumphant, and put paid to the reign of sin and death over his people forever. <coughs> That's Christmas. The end to death. And we go through the winter nights, but it's the end of the darkness that sat upon the earth. The people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And John says it in his own words. We saw his glory. The glory of of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I just want to tell you this, because I think it's quite interesting. Some of you may not know the Old Testament very well. But if you do know the Old Testament, 
Have a look at Exodus chapters 33 and 34, because that's what John is basing his comments on. It's about Moses up the mountain with God. And God is teed off with the Israelites because they've turned against him only months after he saved them from slavery. And God says to Moses, because he talked to Moses as if he was talking to a friend, he says, Moses, I've had enough of these people. I'm going to get rid of them. I'll make a people out of you. And Moses says, no, no, don't do that. Don't let the, Israelite, the Egyptians and other nations um, laugh at you and bring you to scorn. They'll say, you brought your people out into the wilderness. You couldn't get them home. You're a failure. Don't do that. Think of your great name. And Moses, God says, okay, okay, I won't do that. And Moses kind of seems to win an advantage there over God. He gets into a deeper, deeper relationship with God. And that makes him ask the next question. He says, Lord, show me your glory. Moses was aching to know more of the God that he'd spent so much time with. That's always an indication that you spent time with God, you know, that you always want to know more. I have a very deep concern for people who think once on a Sunday and a couple of times at a community group is enough of God, you know? Or people who say, well, it's the holiday time, so I'll give church a miss. Got friends coming round, so we don't really need. That's not the mark of somebody who's hungry for the living God. Let me tell you that. The mark of those who are hungry for God is that they always say, maybe not in the same words, but with the same sentiment, Lord for what I've seen of you, there is so much more. Show me. I need to see your glory. I need to see who you are and be bathed in the light of your beauty and truth. I need you. I've seen enough to know that I'm nothing without you. You are my wisdom. You are my path. You are my reward. You are my destiny. You are my all in all. Show me your glory. Satisfy me with more of you. For there is nothing else and no one else who can satisfy me the way you do. That's the language of real religion. Tell your friends that. Tell your family that. I have children at home who think, you know, John and Beth, they, they have to go to church on a Sunday. They, they like doing good stuff. They don't know about the hunger for God that his people feel. They know that, don't know that we meet together because we're hoping that perchance one day when we're together singing about Jesus... Jesus himself might be present with us. Lord, show us your glory. And Jesus did. And he showed him his true glory, the glory that he brought down from heaven by enduring the shame of a degrading death by crucifixion. Jesus' own verdict just before they came to arrest him. Now is the Son of Man glorified. That's how he showed his glory. That's how he demonstrated who he really is. And let me say this. If you want to understand what it means to know the glory of God in Jesus Christ, it means this. That when you look at Jesus, you realize that he is true, he is beautiful, and he is desirable. Let me just briefly say to you why I think this is so. And it's really contained in that verse there. It talks about truth and grace. Go back to Exodus 34. You'll find the same phrase translated loving kindness and faithfulness. The glory of God came to earth. And guess what it was? It was the living embodiment of God's kept promises. 
God who said, I will be with you and I will deliver you. And if you sin against me, I will discipline you and then I'll bring you back and I will get you home and I will keep my promises to you. That is the God who sent his son. But these are some of the reasons why Jesus, if he is truly seen, is not only seen to be true, he is seen to be beautiful and he is seen to be desirable. In Jesus, there are a combination of all the qualities that those who have lived in the darkness need to see. There is power combined with tenderness. Because we know what it is to live in a world where we don't have a great deal of power. God could say, let there be a light. But you try telling your kids to tidy up their bedroom. <laughs> or, please don't park in front of my drive again. God issues commands and they happen. There is power there to match our powerlessness. But there is tenderness for us when we fail. So that when we meet again with our own inadequacy, we don't fall into despair. His power reassures us and his tenderness catches us on the way down and holds us firm. There is purity combined with patience. His purity is terrifying. His purity will purge every sin and boy will it hurt. But he is patient because he knows that we're made of flesh and we will fall. But then he will restore and forgive. There is truth. Blinding truth like an arrow that will get through all your defences and all your excuses and nail you. But there is compassion too. He knows that we're dust. He knows that we need to hear the truth, but he knows that we are fragile and easily frightened by loud noises. He's compassionate. He, is, he has wisdom. The wisdom that always knows the right answer to every problem. He even knows the answers to problems we haven't yet encountered. He knows the way we should take. And he is long-suffering. Because he watches us constantly veer off the pathway. And then slowly find our way back. Power combined with tenderness. Purity with patience. Truth with compassion. Wisdom with long-suffering. This is the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. My final point. If you, like John, perceive this glory, you will change. When Moses spent a few weeks up in the mountain with God, and there God's glory was veiled, he couldn't look at God's face. <coughs> when he came down from the mountain, people were scared to go near Moses because his face was shining from the presence of God. He had to put a cloth over his head. You see, the glory of God transforms those who gaze on it. If you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you will be changed from one degree of glory to the other. The more you are with him, the more like him you will be. And that's an incredible thought to take forward into 2015, isn't it? Can I say this? Have I described to you this morning... A Jesus that you recognise. It's the picture I've described familiar. It should be if you are a believer. But there may be some of you here who are not believers. And so this is alien and strange to you. What I can say to you is this. The light is shining brightly. 
All you need to do is turn to where the light is shining. And the light of the glory of God will do the rest. All you need to do is be where God is active. And he will pick you up. All you need to do is look for him. And he will find you. Even in the darkness, he knows where you are. And his power and his tenderness and his purity and his patience and his truth and his compassion, his wisdom and his long-suffering will come and embrace you and lead you out of the darkness into light.